Thanks, y'all. I'm just sometimes in awe at the broad spectrum of music that touches hearts and souls and glorifies God. And it's just, as we approach the scripture, let us empty our hearts of ourselves. Cleanse us of the worries and the busyness. And Father, let us seek to see you as you've chosen to reveal yourself. We ask this in Jesus' holy name. Um, in September of 2004, Chris Tomlin released a song that was called How Great Is Our God. And I'm sure many of, many of you know it. It rapidly gained a whole lot of popularity. As a matter of fact, in 2006, it won the Dove Award for Song of the Year. And it won the Dove Award for Best Worship Song of the Year in 2006 and in 2008. As refrain is very, very familiar, how great is our God. Sing with me how great is our God. And all will see how great, how great is our God. And I just imagine a group of Christians that are so focused on singing about the greatness of God that they become attractive to the world, that all will see how great is the God we serve as we as faithful Christians glorify Him in all that we say and do. And then I realize how short I fall. How little I really, really, really think about the greatness and the majesty and the glory of this God that I can hardly imagine. And so as we approach our scripture today, I thought, I thought I would bring us back to the basics kind of a little bit with this message. I love the way the Bible Gateway website refers to our scripture passage today. We'll be reading from Psalm 19. And with your permission, instead of using the NIV, I will be reading out of the New King James Version because I just like the way they render the language a little bit. But the Bible Gateway website calls this psalm the perfect revelation of the Lord. That plays two ways. This could be the perfect revelation. This is a perfect picture of who God is. Or it could be God's perfection in revealing Himself. But as is our custom, as you are able, would you please rise for the reading and the hearing of God's Word. Psalm 19, to the chief musician, a psalm of David. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the firmament shows His handiwork. Day unto day utters speech, and night unto night reveals knowledge. There is no speech or knowledge where their voice is not heard. Their line has gone throughout the whole world, 
and their words to the end of the world. In them he has set a tabernacle for the sun, which is like a bridegroom coming out of his chamber, and rejoices like the strong man to run its race. It is rising from one end of the heaven and its circuit to the other end, and there is nothing hidden from its heat. The law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The statutes of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, yes, than much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey and the honeycomb. Moreover, by them your servant is warned, and in keeping them there is great reward. Who can understand his errors? Cleanse me from my secret faults. Keep your back, keep back your servant from also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and I shall be innocent of great transgression. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Ladies and gentlemen, the grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Amen. Please be seated. Of the 150 psalms that we find in the book of Psalms, David is directly attributed to the authorship of 73. There are at least 12 others that some scholars say that he influenced or had a hand in. So he's, he, he, he's a pretty big deal when it comes to writing these great songs of praise. And no less an authority than the Christian author C.S. Lewis had this to say about the scripture passage in front of us today. Lewis said that this psalm reflects more than any other the beauty and the splendor of Hebrew poetry found in the Psalter. He says, I take this to be the greatest poem in the Psalter and one of the greatest lyrics in the world. The title tells us who the author is and who its audience is. A Psalm of David. David is the author. And he addresses it to the chief musician. And there are many people who believe that that chief musician may be the head of the choir or someone like a great singer like He-Man or Asaph who we see in 1 Chronicles. Bet y'all didn't know I could find that, did you? But there is a large school of scholars that seem to believe that the chief musician is God himself. The one who makes nature sing his praises. And it would be very, very tempting and very easy to go in and dive deep into this particular psalm. And talk about its lyric beauty and, and, and just revel in the poetry that, that, that David presents to us. But I, I, I'm going to commend that to you for homework. 
Read it again. Write it out. Get a commentary and study it and drink deep into this psalm where David reveals just a fraction of what he sees as the glory of God. I'm going to touch on it real quick, point out a couple of things, maybe to guide you along in your study, but then I want to move on to what is the impact of having a belief system built on what David reveals here. Because I think there's an application for us. The psalm in front of us easily divides itself into three parts. The first part, if you've got your Bibles open still, verses 1 to 6. And in verses 1 to 6, we see David talking about the beauty and the splendor of the natural world and how they point directly to the glory of the one who created them. Has anybody ever been out on a brilliant starless night where you just see up in the expanse of heavens and billions and billions? You can't find that anywhere around a city, right? You got to go way out in the country or out, to, out on the seas to see the majesty of the heavens revealed. And I think sometimes in our modernness we have gotten so far away from an appreciation of the splendor of nature that we don't really think about the creator of that nature deeply enough. You see, I don't know when this psalm was written. There's no no tie-in. There's no historical reference in here. So in my mind, I see David having spent the night in the wilderness, under the stars, considering the glory of God as revealed in the heavens, and waking up and saying, man, i got to write a psalm today. That's just the way I see it. What David is talking about here in high church talk is called general revelation. This is where God is revealing Himself through the beauty of His creation. It's perhaps this psalm that Paul had in mind when he wrote his letter to the Romans. Remember in Romans verses eight, chapter 1, verses 18 to 20, Paul wrote that the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of men who suppress the truth by their wickedness, since what may be known about God is plain to them. Because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, His eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made so that men are without excuse. The beauty of the creation points to and sings the glory of the Creator. In verses 4 to 6, we see that this creation joyfully testifies to God. You get this picture, (coughs) pardon me, (coughs) you get this picture of the sun making its circuit of the sky. And you got to remember that in that day, 
Everybody thought the world was flat. And underneath the earth was nothing but water. And over the earth, there was this big dome, kind of like Tupperware, that kept all the water out until God decided to make it rain, and he opened a window. And when the great flood came, he opened all the windows. Right? That's the way they viewed the world. And so when you see the word firmament, that's that, that's that dome, the Tupperware. But every other culture of the day <coughs> had a sun god. And they saw that god getting up in the morning and you know, showing his glory as he goes by. David goes, no, that's not a god. That's the sun made by God. But as it reveals itself, David talks about a, <coughs> a bridegroom coming out of his tabernacle on his wedding day. Don't know about y'all, I was pretty excited on my wedding day. And so here's this sun, this image, this personification of the sun joyfully doing its job. And the runner who takes joy in his course, clearly that is not written about me. You do not get a physique like this by being a marathon, right? But I do know people that love to run. And I love the attribution that Dr. James Lindbergh, professor emeritus of Old Testament at the Luther Seminary in St. Paul, Minnesota, gives this guy. He rather mirthfully refers to this runner as the sun, where they kind of join together. He calls it the perpetually jubilant celestial jogger. Kind of a cute picture in my mind. The second part of the psalm verses 7 to 10 deal with what our officer training manual called special revelation. You got general revelation, what God tells us about himself in nature. And then there's special revelation. What God tells us about himself through his revealed word and his deeds and actions in human history. And it's important to remember that at David's time, their Bible was a whole lot skinnier than ours. They didn't have the full story yet. Matter of fact, by the time of David, there's probably just the Torah, the first five books, the books of Moses. Or as, as the ancient Hebrews used to refer to them, the books of the law. And so when David refers to the Word of God, it's only natural that he would refer to the Word of God in terms of law. <coughs> And if you look at it in verse 7, you see the law of the Lord and the statutes of the Lord. In verse 8, the precepts of the Lord and the commands of the Lord. Then we get the fear or awe of the Lord and the ordinances of the Lord. And all of these mentions of God's Word are equivalent to or synonymous with the concept of law. 
something to be obeyed. It's also worth noting that in verse 1, David refers to God as God. This is the Hebrew word El. This is just God. Okay, there's a, there's a God here that made this creation. But when we get to verses 7 to 10, when David refers to God, he uses the word Lord. Capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. And when you read that, all capitalized word Lord in your Bible, there should be a little clue going off in your head. Because what that translator is telling you is that this is where the word Yahweh, Jehovah, exists in the text. Yahweh, Jehovah, is the covenant name, the personal name of God. And so when David shifts from nature revealing God, God, just general God, to God's word, He all of a sudden starts talking about God in the covenant sense. This is the God that made his promises to us. What does David say about the word? He says it's perfect. It's trustworthy. It's right. It's radiant. It's pure and sure and altogether righteous. The Word of God also has an impact on us. It had an impact on David. In every one of those expositions of what the law is, there is a definition of what it is. It's perfect, trustworthy, right, radiant, pure, sure, and altogether righteous. But it also says that it brings us revival, wisdom, joy, light, and endurance. And that those that feast upon the word as David did would enjoy these characteristics in their lives. And then finally, when we consider the third portion of the psalm, verses 11 to 14, you've got God revealed in nature, you've got God revealed in the world, and David goes, who am I in the face of this God? And he starts praying to be protected against sin that he might be pleasing in the sight of the Lord his God. And so from that standpoint, I think this is a very, very instructive thing. But the question I really want to consider today is how did this understanding of the power, the majesty, the might, and the holiness of God play itself out in David's life? Because there's an application, I believe, for us as well. You see, David didn't just think about these things. He lived them. He believed them. He drank them in. They were in every fiber of his being. The result, David was fearless. He was frequently wise. Not always. He was human too. And he was persevering and patient. He was able to endure great trials for long periods of time without giving up faith. You see, David didn't sweat the big stuff. He was fully relying on God to take care of the God things in God's time. Now, no study of David would be complete without at least looking into the life of the king that preceded him. 
You see, Saul and David are a study in contrast. If you remember the story, if you've read your first Samuel, King Saul starts out okay, quickly falters, fails, and comes to a tragic end. David had a kingdom that grew and grew and grew. And if you really start pulling at the threads and you say, what's the difference? In my opinion, it comes down to a question of worldview. Your belief system. And who or what you place your trust in. We read in 1 Samuel that Saul came from a family of standing. Read that, wealth and power, right? They were prosperous. Saul's described as an impressive young man without equal among the Israelites. He was a full head taller than everybody else. Handsome, tall, athletic, wealthy. This guy's got it all. And when the people of Israel heard that he was going to be their king, they took one look at this big bad boy and they said, yep, that's us. Long live the king, right? Now, it's easy to infer that such an impressive young man, uh, such a son of privilege, raised in a prosperous household, was probably taught back then as we are taught today to be self-reliant. Right? God helps those who help themselves. Doesn't appear anywhere in the Bible, by the way. But that's what we like to tell ourselves, right? I got to go, I got to, I got to, I got to, I got to. Anybody other than me got the I got to? Right? I got to make something happen. And it's easy to see that. And if you track Saul's career as king, you see that coming out. Early in his reign, Saul was obedient to God and his kingdom prospered. But as Saul got deeper and deeper and deeper into his kingship, You know, he's got all those people whispering in his ear about how cool he is because he's king. It's good to be king, right? Everybody tells you you're right. Can I be king, baby? No, I didn't think so. Everybody tells you you're right when you're king. And that can kind of go to your head. And you can start believing it. And Saul did. And what happened... His reliance on God diminished. He grows more confident, even arrogant, and his reliance on himself grows. And we see very soon into his reign that he's facing the Philistines. And before he goes out into battle, he wants Samuel to come down and bless his boys, right? And Samuel says, I'll be there in seven days. And as as Saul's men start dispersing because they're terrified, of the Philistines, and Samuel hasn't showed up to bring God's blessing down on them, his men are starting to scatter. And Saul says, I got to do something. And so Saul says, bring me the stuff, I'll make the sacrifices. And just as he's finishing, Samuel shows up and says, what have you done? Anybody other than me ever been caught red-handed? Right? Right? Uh, uh, you, know, I, I, you know, I was just doing a blessing. And, Saul, and Samuel rebukes Saul. But it doesn't turn him around. 
You see, just the next chapter, God tells him to go and handle the Amalekites. And gives him very specific instructions on what to do to those particular Amalekites. And Saul doesn't do it. He rebels against God. And when, when Samuel comes up and catches him in it, Saul lies. And he even has the arrogance to go build a monument to himself and his great victory after he had just rebelled against God. And at that point, God rejects him. And he sends Samuel on this mission. I want you to go to a little place called Bethlehem. There you'll find Jesse. Jesse has eight sons. I have chosen one of those sons to be the next king of Israel. Your job is to go figure it out. Right? And anoint him. And so they send, Samuel is obedient. He goes down. He sees the sons of Jesse's. And David, we get this impression, is nowhere near physically as impressive as King Saul was. Matter of fact, Scripture says he was ruddy and fair of face. He'd been hanging out, you know, tending sheep. You get a suntan, that's ruddy. Fair of face, not a very big deal. Matter of fact, God has to tell Samuel the prophet, hey, don't look at his size. It's not the outward appearance that I judge, I judge the heart. And so Samuel looks at all these big old boys that Jesse has, and he goes, this is not the one, 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 this is not the one. Do you have any other sons? Yeah, there's the, the punk, the runt, the caboose. He's out in the field tending the sheep. Oh, man. And we know that when David goes to the army to bring food to his brothers and he's willing to go out and fight Goliath, the army laughs at him, you're just a boy. And even Goliath rages at the insult of the Jews sending out a little boy to fight the champion of the Philistine army. But see, David wasn't counting on himself. David was counting on the God that he had discerned in nature that had protected him when the lion attacked his sheep and he was able to kill the lion. That had protected David when the bear attacked his sheep and David was able to attack the bear. And that when all of the men of Israel for 40 days stood in fear of Goliath, allowed David to go stand before the giant and say to that giant, you come against me with sword and spear and javelin. But I come against you in the name of the Lord Almighty, Jehovah Sabaoth, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied, and this day the Lord will hand you over to me. And David goes on to proclaim that God will bring David to victory so that the whole world will know that there is a God in Israel. We know the rest of that story. What I want you to point out is David's assurance is not in himself, it's not in his intellect, it's not in his physical abilities, it is not in any way, shape, or form 
anything about him. It's about the God he serves, the power, the might, and the majesty of that God. As David, David's fame grows, you may remember, Saul becomes jealous. You see, when you worship and you rely on yourself, you can't tolerate other people doing well. On two occasions, while David is playing the liar, trying to soothe the king's nerves, Saul tries to kill him by throwing a spear at him. This was nowhere in the job description when David applied. And Saul's rage against David grows to the point where David has to flee and go into hiding. And Saul, in his madness and rage, takes the entire Israeli army and pursues David. In that pursuit, there were two occasions where David could have taken Saul's life. But David would not take matters into his own hands. He trusted in God, that God would deliver on his promise to David, that God would deliver on his anointing in God's time, in God's place, and through God's means. At God's appointed time on Mount Gilboa, God cleared the way for David's kingship. King Saul and all three of his legitimate sons, the entire line of succession, were killed in battle in one day. You see, if David had wiped out Saul when he had a chance, Saul's sons would have been in line for the kingdom. David holding his hands allowed God to act in a more complete way. But even then, when the pathway was clear, David did not seize the moment. He did not grasp for the throne. He did not say, I'm going to make this happen now. He inquired of the Lord, what should I do? And God said, go to Hebron. And David obeyed. And in Hebron, David camped out with his men. And the elders of Judah came to David and asked him to become their king. David didn't have to take the throne, he was given the throne. And when, uh, when, when, when Saul's people, Saul's chief military official heard that David had become king, he sets up a puppet king. And rallies all of Israel around him. And so now all of a sudden David, the king of Judah, is being confronted by the rest of Israel under the son of Saul through a foreign concubine. The rest of Israel had accepted a foreigner on their throne. And they went to war with Judah. And though David was outnumbered by more than ten to one in terms of fighting men, he remained faithful. And a couple of years later, the Lord cleared the way. The, the leader of the rest of Israel died under what some might call curious circumstances. And David could have made a big deal and gone, hey guys, you don't have a king, here I am. But he didn't. He waited. 
And the elders of the rest of Israel came to David and said, will you be our king? David did not seize what God was going to give him. David was patient to wait for what God was going to provide. David had a faith and a trust in God that was undeniable. And David, under God's blessing, went on to win many victories. As a matter of fact, King David grew the state of Israel to its greatest size. Defeated the enemies that were trying to destroy the wipe them off the face of the earth, much as it happens today. And David always gave the credit to God. It was God's victory. It was God's land. It was God's people. God had made David king over God's people. And David tried to stay in a right relationship. You see, in this story of two contrasting kings, we see something we can learn from. Saul, from a prominent family, would certainly have been raised to know his scriptures. Saul knew about God. But what he learned from his family was not to rely on God, it was to to rely on himself. And he did. He was obedient to God as long as things were going his way. And when they weren't, he acted on his own. David knew God. He had contemplated the glory of God as revealed in his creation. He had rejoiced in the reading of God's word. David sang songs to God. He prayed to God. He inquired of God and he was obedient to God. David's God was so great that David trusted. He feared not. Even in the depths of the darkest times. You see, Saul was a good king, went bad. David wasn't a perfect king, he was a better king. When he waited on and trusted and obeyed God, God delivered and Israel under King David prospered. For those of you in our book-to-book Sunday school class where we're studying 2 Samuel now, you will also know that David wasn't perfect. When David acted on his own, when David acted as a free agent, absent the will and the knowledge of God's plan, he could sure mess things up. His inability to be a king with one wife as God had prescribed in Deuteronomy more than 500 years before the first king of Israel, created conflicts that would tear apart his family and ultimately the kingdom of Israel. But when David was obedient and trusting and patient, God always Fulfilled God's promise. He always has. He always will. Despite David's flaws, God made David Israel's greatest king. 
earthly king. Matter of fact, he foreshadowed a king that will one day come again. And on the day of the coming of that king, we are told that every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess that Christ Jesus is Lord to the glory of God. How great is our God. How great is our God. How great is your God. It is my prayer for you and for all of us that we take the time to really ponder and consider the majesty, the power, the greatness, the omnipresence, the omniscience, the all of the words that I can't pronounce that are awesome about our God. In his grace and peace. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, Lord, we give you thanks. Father, that you would care about us and reveal yourself, Father, through your nature, your creation, Father, through your word. Father, go with us now as we go out into a community that so desperately needs to know you. Father, that we may be light. Father, we may glorify you that all may see how great is our God. In Jesus' holy and precious name, amen.